All right, everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson with you, and I'm going to give you a little preview of what is coming up. And so here it is. Later on for our inbox, we have a listener who's wondering if it's wrong to date in high school. Is that too young? What does that look like? Um, If you've listened to the show for a while, you know I have my opinion, but we're going to bring in one of our counselors um, to weigh in on that as well. And so some great advice there. And then for our culture segment, we have JP Pakluda back with us for the third straight week. He just doesn't stop talking people, okay? But this time he's actually going to address concerns with Christians around alcohol. And so he and I have a very fun spirited conversation on that subject. Um, including what does the Bible actually say about alcohol and being under the influence of alcohol and where is the line in what's acceptable or not? Is there a line? Whatever. We're going to have that discussion. But here we are for our roundtable. And speaking of discussions, a great conversation coming up with three friends. I have Jess, George, and Paul here. Hey, y'all. Hey, Lisa. Good to have you. Okay, we are going to talk about really finding joy in life when it feels impossible. And this could be someone could be listening and they're like, well, that's my everyday because maybe I struggle with some mental health stuff. I've had a history of depression. I'm, you know, in a depressive season right now. Or maybe it's just like, you know, I keep saying on the show as we head in, I mean, stuff in our culture, stuff in whether you're talking to younger adults or some, you know, navigating career and the the dumpster fire that is the economy (laughs) and (laughs) so many challenges um, that are out there right now, family dynamics and broken families and sibling relationships. So there's a lot that has acted upon us even in terms of circumstances that um, have produced a lot of grief, I think, collectively for us, even those of us who are Christians. And so we want to talk about that a little bit. And so I want to kind of start by just getting some general background story from you guys. Um, Tell me a little bit, Paul, maybe you can start us out here. What has been your story when you think of like finding joy when it feels impossible? What is your story around that? Boy, that's a big question. It you know, is. I have, just uh, <laughs> do it in like two minutes. So go ahead. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just click right along. Yep. Um, yeah. So I, I really was diagnosed with depression probably about uh, 20 years ago. Hmm. It was a very difficult season of my life. I was uh, dealing with a job that I was working really hard and still felt like I was not doing a great job with. Because I was working so much, I felt like I wasn't being the husband that I needed to be, uh, wasn't the father that I needed to be. And it really put me into a pretty dark place. Um, I tend to sort of lean that way anyway. This was not my my first depressive episode, but it was probably the strongest. Um, and I sort of sank into this period where for probably three or four weeks, I wasn't able to uh, to leave a couch, essentially. I was eating maybe a couple of crackers a day. I was sleeping um, maybe an hour, 90 minutes a night. And so that was sort of when I was the deepest in, in this place where I really just couldn't cope. Uh, the process back was long and had lots and lots of fits and starts, uh, as I think that a lot of people who, who have had depressive episodes can relate to. It's not one of those easy, quick fixes. But, you know, I'm obviously talking here now, so that's, yeah. that's not a bad thing. Well, I was going to say, what are you talking about? You mean you didn't just pray and then Jesus <laughs> fixed it and you've never had any struggle since? I thought that's how it works. So I guess we'll get back to that. 
All right, Jess, how about you? Yeah, so I actually was diagnosed with a panic disorder before I was ever diagnosed with uh, depression. Mm. And my panic disorder uh, often enough does lead to kind of depressive symptoms. And so I've kind of just struggled throughout my life with just episodes of depression. And it's manifested in different ways. It's kind of come about because of different seasons, you know, triggers, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, it really, for, for me, it's just kind of been a journey of really knowing kind of myself and what what am I, you know, on my day to day and figuring out, well, if I don't feel like, you know, myself now, there's probably something going on. Mm-hmm. And then having to figure out, you know. Yeah what to do next. Okay. Well, George, you have actually been in counseling and ministry for, I think, over 40 years now, which yes, I ma'am. said was shocking because you're so young. Um, but I want you to speak... Age you, six. Spe- <laughs> specifically in grief and depression counseling. And so talk to us because I'm finding, I mean, for those listening, I mean, we're talking about college through 30-somethings mm-hmm. mostly. These are two generations, millennials and Gen Z, who have experienced unprecedented levels and rates of depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. um, mental health struggles of, of all ilks. Why is that? What are you seeing in your practice as you talk uh, specifically to these of you know folks in this generation that you would say, where where's this coming from? What is the thread that you're seeing that ties this together? There are so many threads. It can be situational. Mm-hmm. It can be biochemical. It can be neurochemical. It can be all of the above. Mm-hmm. I was looking at uh, the pharmaceutical journal prior to the broadcast, 83.4 million Americans in the U.S. are on antidepressants. That was just staggering. Mm -hmm. So I love what what Lisa said, or excuse me, what Jess said about getting to know yourself because that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. A lot of times our depression can be traced all the way back to a childhood wound, to some form of trauma, and when we're traumatized, the enemy never, ever misses an opportunity Mm -hmm. to sow into us lies and false beliefs. Mm -hmm. Those lies and false beliefs create huge emotional explosions, Mm -hmm. which in turn demand some form of expression, which is never healthy. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, any of you, how then do you recognize it? Because I had a friend who for years struggled with depression, and she never even bothered to seek help because that was her normal. She thought that was her normal self. And if she was having a good day, well, that was just out of the ordinary. So (laughs) what in the world? Where do you go with that? How do you even Mm -hmm. start asking yourself the questions on that end? It's a really good question. And and I'll just I'll just start off when when I had this depressive episode that I'm talking about it, it really initially manifested itself physically, I thought I was just having some really bad stomach ailments, right? I thought there was just something wrong with with me physically. As time went on and as I started to recover, we would go to see doctors. We would go to see all manner of doctors trying to figure out what was going on with my stomach. Um, They couldn't find anything wrong. And so that's when we started to explore other options. So for me, it was a little more, that was sort of the, the alarm bell, mm-hmm. right, to, to let me know that there was something sort of wrong uh, that wasn't at all related to my stomach. It was, it was definitely one of those, those alarm bells that goes off. Yeah, wow. My mm-hmm. alarm bell was a little more mental. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I am a person who loves lists. I thrive off lists. I make my list of things that I need to do all weekend, and I crank those puppies out. Mm-hmm. And I got to the point where I was making my lists, 
And then I would just kind of stare at them. Mm-hmm. And I just, I could not get myself motivated to do anything on it. I would just say, oh, you know, I'll get to it tomorrow and go sit on the couch. And after a few months of that, I said, that's that's not who I am. That's not normal. Something else is going on. Yeah. Um, but I know, like, my, my mom also suffers with depression. Hers manifested with just anger mm-hmm. and, you know, angry outbursts. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it truly is, like, it's so different person mm-hmm. to person how it manifests. Yeah. Huh. I think we all have an episode of depression, perhaps several episodes throughout mm-hmm. our life, because mm-hmm. so much of depression is situational. Mm-hmm. You know, you're working so hard, you're, get, you're really determined, I'm going to get the next promotion. And you've been there for years. And a college guy is hired, and you're thinking, what the heck? Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, it can just ruin your day, your week. It can ruin months. Mm-hmm. So much is situational. So again, uh, what Jess said was so important. When you begin to think or speak or act outside of your norm, mm-hmm. pay attention yeah. because awareness is critical. Yeah. When when I think about depression, one of the one of the things that you find is that there are some certain there are some certain warning signs that mm-hmm. you sort of pay attention to, especially if you're a parent, if you're paying attention to kids. But this goes for yourself too. You know, mm-hmm. if you're if you're sensing sleep patterns that are changing, mm-hmm. eating patterns that are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, of course, you know, sadness, some deep sadness, can be obviously very related to depression. But but mm-hmm. sometimes it can just be a fuzziness in your brain where you're mm-hmm. not thinking clearly, where you just can't, like you were talking about, Jess, where you just can't get motivated motivated Mm -hmm. to do stuff, Mm -hmm. Um, when you don't take joy in a lot of the stuff that you've always really enjoyed before, those Mm -hmm. are signs that you might want to talk with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what um, I'm almost thinking here of where people would, especially as we're, you know, maybe thinking of friends or family members who are walking through seasons of this or have struggled with this lifelong. It's funny, kind of not funny in that I think of how many people, you know, how you have to discern between like there are people who are just bona fide negative people or <laughs> critical people or yes. angry people. And there are sin issues to play into, you know, so it's almost like, have you ever felt like labeled or targeted of mm-hmm. like, you're just such mm-hmm. a downer or, you know, kind of the Christian mm-hmm. naysayers of like, you just need to trust God. I mean, I don't even know what, what you're doing with that. So how do you, I mean, one, how would we be able to say like, Okay, I mean, not that you're just going to walk up to everyone and be like, I think you have a sin <laughs> issue of negativity, but but really, how do you kind of tread that, you know, carefully, but also know, one, when you're getting kind of responses like that, but also how to be sensitive with other people? Part of it is understanding that the things that depression tells you are inherently lies. Um, you know, for me, when I'm kind of in the, the depths of that depression, the lie that keeps getting written on my heart is no one likes you you don't have any friends they only invite you places because they pity you Mm. and that's just it's a lie it's just such a lie and I think it then becomes so easy to kind of live in that as reality and then yeah that's when you're going to kind of notice that you're kind of turning into a negative Nancy and or negative Norman and and so I think that there there are signs I think um you know, when you when you have loved ones that you know very deeply and intimately, um, you can kind of see when they get into that like negative mindset mm-hmm. and are living in that reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said something, Lisa, I thought was important. Also, um, you mentioned the word sin, 
when I know that I'm making decisions that violate my conscience, that violate my faith, there's a shame issue. Mm-hmm. If I continue to l- make those kinds of decisions, that shame is going to take me into depression. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's absolutely true. And that's one of the, one of the weird things that we have to navigate as a church, really, when we're talking about these issues, because depression really can be triggered by by the things that you're doing in your life. If you feel like you're living outside of, of what God intends for you, mm-hmm. that can cause shame and guilt and, and all mm-hmm. sorts of issues. But at the same time, you know, we know that there are so many Christians who deal with depression. And I have found in my own life um, that sometimes the place where I feel less like sharing um, is actually within the confines of a church. Mm-hmm. Church can be a place where we go and we put on our happy faces, where people ask us how we are, and we say we're fine. We don't use that place as a place that we should, where we are totally transparent, where we are totally honest. We, I think that at least I tend to perform a little bit more mm-hmm. within a church environment, in part because I worry that people are going to judge me mm-hmm. um, for what I have gone through. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, you know what, you're not doing... You're not doing Christianity right. Mm-hmm. You, there must be something wrong with your faith. Yeah. Well said, Paul. Well, and there's an element, I think, of, you know, when you think of, okay, there's, you know, church, then maybe there's community group, maybe you're serving somewhere. There are elements of like, I just need to get through this. I mm-hmm. need to be, and if someone asks me something, do they really even care? Mm-hmm. And it's very easy because they should care, and you mm-hmm. assume that you're going to go to church and people are going to care. Mm-hmm. But then when they don't or they don't follow up, then mm-hmm. you can be left holding the bag, and that could be mm-hmm. really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get back to, because we said, you know, uh, the topic is finding joy when it feels impossible. Let's talk a little bit about joy. Um, If someone wants to give a distinction between being happy and being joyful, uh, that would be great. But I'd also like to know in this context, what does it look like for you to find joy even in the midst of maybe a tough season or, you know, because I think... Mm -hmm. I think for Christians, we're, we're expected like, okay, well, what's that going to look like? You're going to have to dig deep. Obviously, God loves you. How do you know that? I mean, what, is it, what does it look like for you very practically to find joy in the middle of an afternoon in a really, really bad mm. place? Yeah. It's a great question. The difference between, I mean, to be simplistic, happiness is always situational. Joy is always relational. Mm. So we have to be very careful. In life, you have the capacity to make me happy and to make me sad, but you can never define who I am. You cannot define my worth, my value. My relationship with Christ defines me. Mm-hmm. So I can find joy in my relationship with the Lord, even if my relationship with you is incredibly painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let me let me hop on to that because I think that's absolutely right. One of the things that I've found um, as I've gone through through this journey is that it, it's like you were saying, Jess. Sometimes you feel depression lies to you. Mm-hmm. Depression lies to you, and even as Christians, we know that we are loved by God. We have a purpose in life. Depression hammers at your door and says no. That is a lie. And one of the ways to push past that, I think, a little bit is to 
to concentrate on what you know. We know that what we feel can sort of go with the tides. It can go with the weather. But if we lean on what we know, if we if we know that the sun is behind the clouds, I think that that can help us get through some of those difficult times. Mm-hmm. So do you actually just have things like that you know, like written out? I mean, do you have to rehearse stuff you, like you that? You kind of do. Yeah. I mean, because when you are really you can deep be tricked in there, by yourself. You I mean, can be tricked by yourself. Yeah. And you, the, the claws of, of depression can really sink deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... You have to, and you do have a list. I know that God loves me. I know that God has a purpose for me. I know that he wants me to be here for my loved ones, for my friends. Mm -hmm. Um, To concentrate on those things, uh, it can be so important. Even if you're in a season where it's hard to feel them, if you know that they're true, it can help pull you through, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. One of the things tagging under what you just said, Paul, is in psychology, we call it self-talk. And long before some mental health guru ever coined the phrase, it's all through the scripture and it's very powerful Mm -hmm. because we can speak life or we can speak death. You can't control the thoughts that come into your mind. I'm worthless. I'll never measure up, you know. I don't deserve to be happy. I mean, we all deal with that. Mm -hmm. But we can bring those thoughts captive if we use our voice. Mm -hmm. Revelation 12, 11 says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So there's three things happening here. Number one, there's somebody who hates me because I bear the image of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You would think, well, I'm a Christian. So I've accepted Christ. Doesn't that fix everything? Shouldn't (laughs) I be okay because I'm a Christian? No, Mm -hmm. because we have to use our voice. When I say to myself, I am a man of incredible worth and value. Mm -hmm. I am loved and I am precious to the Lord. Mm -hmm. I am speaking the truth of what God says, even if I don't emotionally believe that in the moment. Mm And so if I'm going to rise above that negative emotion, I've got to hear my own words, not your words. So you can tell me I'm wonderful, (laughs) and that's not going to lift me out of my depression. I've got to use my voice, and my voice has got to line up with the Word of God. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so true. Jess, what does it look like for you to find joy? Yeah, well, I think the important distinction to remember is that, like like George said, you know, happiness is so based on your circumstances. It's it's going to change, you know, at any minute, second of the day. Whereas joy, I mean, it is a gift from the Holy Spirit that we are invited to participate in. I mean, you think about, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, mm-hmm. love, joy, peace, mm-hmm. patience, you know. And so that's something that we get to participate in. And I mean, it's it's not always easy. It's a choice you have to make. I know, you know, for me, when I'm kind of deep in that pit of despair, this is going to sound totally antithetical. But what I have to tell myself when I'm there is it's not your typical, you know, happy, feel good. You know, if I just <laughs> tell myself this, I'll feel better. Mm-hmm. My my inner monologue is God has a purpose for the pain I'm feeling right now. Well said. I don't know what this is going to be. I can't see it right now. I'm too deep in the pit. Mm-hmm. But the glory of the Lord is going to be shown through this season somehow, some way. Yeah. I think of, it's in um, John 9, where Jesus and the disciples are walking into this town and there's a, a man who'd been born blind. And the disciples ask, you know, it was it this man who sinned or his parents that sinned that, you know, he's blind. And Jesus says, it's neither. This is so that the glory of the Lord 
may be shown. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what I have to cling to. Yeah. Somehow God is going to use this. Yeah. So just in the last, I mean, minute or a little bit more that we have here, can you quickly say what are what's your best advice for a person who wants to show up for and come alongside a friend who either they know they're walking through depression, they suspect they are? What are what are just your best pro tips for friends and being in that place with someone? Don't try to fix them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Presence. is more important than your opinion. Walk with someone. The scripture says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Too many times we think we have to fix them and they just need to be heard. They need to be able to express, this is how I feel without feeling condemned and just knowing that you're willing to hear me. Yeah. It's critically important. I would I would agree with that. I think when you look at depression, it is inherently isolating, mm-hmm. right? You feel like you're worthless. You feel like no one cares for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you tend to push people away. Mm-hmm. You find yourself in a cell, mm-hmm. uh, just a big old prison cell mm-hmm. where you can barely see the light. To be at that little window in that cell and to say, I am here for you. Mm-hmm. I will not leave you. Mm-hmm. That can be so important to somebody who has depression to just know that mm-hmm. there is someone who loves and cares for them. Mm-hmm. I'd say do the thing. <laughs> and by that, I mean, you know, if you suspect that your your friend or your loved one or your family member is, is in depression and there's just things that they are just not able to do for themselves, just show up and do it. Good. There is likely, you know, they might get mad at you. They might feel like you're overstepping their bounds. But I, I can guarantee you that down the road, they're going to be so thankful that you showed up in a period of time where they could not show up for themselves. Cool. Okay, so I guess I'm not going to say, so you think you have it bad. Let me tell you about me. (laughs) I'm assuming now that's not where I should go with that. Okay, good good thoughts, y'all. Good advice. Um, I do want to, before we finish here, um, tell you all that Paul here on the panel has a book that he has written titled Beauty in the Browns, Walking with Christ in the Darkness of Depression. And so if you need just a compassionate voice, someone who's been there, someone who is walking through this, has walked through it, and has really put that to paper, um, we want to make sure that you know about that and so we can get you more information. Also, as we often say here on The Boundless Show, we have got a team of counselors here, y'all, who can do a consultation with you and maybe give you a little bit of direction, a little nudge, uh, maybe some resource recommendations, some advice, and then even... Um, recommend possibly a counselor in your area who could do some continued care if that's something that could be valuable to you. And these are people that have been vetted by the Focus on the Family team. So you can either call 1-800, the letter A and the word family, 1-800-A-FAMILY, or you can go online and you can find us at boundless.org slash counseling. And you're going to be directed to a page there that's going to give you all kinds of information um, that can move you forward in this direction. So a lot of great resources there. So you guys, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. It was a pleasure. It's my pleasure, Lisa. California driving had to get out. Distance got me wondering where you are right now. One-way conversations got me worn down Pouring out my heart, wish you would speak a sound
here for this week's culture segment. Uh, We have had a marathon conversation over now three weeks with our dear friend, uh, Pastor J.P. Pecluda, Jonathan Pecluda. He is the pastor at Harris Creek Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. He's also an author. We've had him on the show numerous times about uh, books that he's written, as well as he speaks a fair amount and hosts his podcast, uh, Becoming Something. And so such a fun opportunity to have you back again, J.P. Hey, I'm excited to be back, and and especially excited for the conversation that we're having today. And excited is a is partially true. I'll say excited and anxious in a good way because I think it's so necessary. Yeah. Well, we decided to have this conversation because you and I had had talked a little bit, obviously, um, in your book, which we talked about the previous two weeks, which again, folks, is titled, Why Do I Do What I Don't Want to Do? You actually have a chapter in under the section, The Modern Wars, you call out and kind of parallel drunkenness and sobriety and the battle between those two things. And there are a lot of people listening here who are going to say like, oh, well, I can check out because, you know, I don't know. I don't think I've been drunk since college or, you know, maybe I'm not drunk. Maybe I just get tipsy or maybe I just go to parties or whatever. But, you know, we kind of start our little uh, litmus test of what (laughs) what our relationship with or without alcohol is. And I think someone who doesn't drink at all and has never touched alcohol can easily kind of get a little bit preachy and judgy in this space as well. So I think this is going to be a fun uh, conversation and uh, I'm so glad that you're here for it. And so, um, yeah, thanks so much for for being part of this. Okay, I want to no, just thank you. This is <laughs> lessons I learned the hard way. So excited to have the combo. Well, I had shared with you a blog post that I wrote, which shared my background of growing up in a totally teetotaling household. Basically, and teetotaling, you guys, means like not touching alcohol. So alcohol free. Basically, growing up with parents who. I don't know that they would have ever voiced this, but it was pretty much assumptive that you could not be a believer and drink alcohol. Like it was very, you know, I remember my dad referencing it as the devil's brew. I remember, you know, asides made. I mean, it certainly was never present in our home. Um, So there were there were definitely some some judgy comments about uh, on that front. You, on the other hand, had an entirely different uh, childhood, teen years and young adult years. So kind of tell us the context that you're coming from in this, JP. Yeah, and so, you know, my mother's parents, my grandparents, were the godliest people that I knew growing up. And so they grew up, they lived in this uh, town of 150 people in a farmhouse on acres. They had a dairy farm, and so behind their house were all these dairy cows, and and their their house had a, a front porch, like picture porch swing on a country house. 
and that front porch would overlook this field, and on the other side of the field was their church, and on right beside their church was a cemetery where all their the family that had gone before them were were buried. And I mean, the TBN stayed on the the TV whenever she my grandmother saw me. She'd always say, "How is my mighty man of God?" I mean, just the, these were spiritual people that that loved the Lord and in their own way. And, and I mean, they would everything that they did, uh, or so much of what they did, revolved around their church. And every day at five o'clock, like clockwork, they would sit on their front porch and they'd crack open a beer. And that was just like, you know, German heritage. That was normal. I grew up Catholic. And so when I would, uh, we would go to church and when we would come to the house after church, the priest would come over and crack open a beer. I mean, the guy that just sat there and was, was reading scripture to us would come over for lunchtime and drink a beer. So it was very normative around me. Then I started drinking at an early age. So before I was, it was legal in high school, uh, I would begin to party. I, I would have keg parties, you know, in our, in our garage and, you know, without my parents knowing. And then when I left the house, you know, the way that this topic has impacted me is my dad got vertigo really bad. And so he had an inner ear problem where he would get really dizzy and he'd self-medicate that with alcohol. And so as he got older and older and older, he would drink more and more and more. And he was never an angry drunk. He wasn't a mean drunk. Uh, He would just pass out in his chair. And so we would go home to see him. And a lot of times I would get there and you know, he'd wake up and I could just tell he was intoxicated, which is really discouraging when you go to see your parents and and uh, that's how the, you know, the weekend starts. Yeah. So I want you to kind of give us a little bit of an idea because I know you, I mean, your story of, of coming to Christ and kind of um, getting involved in the church. I remember hearing you tell the story once, like you were invited um, to a men's group at uh, the church that you were involved in previously at Watermark Church, and you were invited for this men's weekend. And you were kind of like, if they're not going to have booze there, like, what am I going to do? Like, was that just kind of a, I mean, it was part of kind of your, the fiber of kind of who you were. And obviously you got into partying, you were prior to ministry, you were pretty successful. Um, What did that, how did that come about? Yeah, alcohol and fun were synonymous. And and you couldn't have fun without it. And so if we went to the lake, there was alcohol. If we went on a trip to the beach, there was alcohol. If we went to a party or to a friend's house or played poker, there was alcohol. I mean, it's just that like anything that you did that was fun, it also had alcohol accompanying it. And so I was at a club, you know, 21 years ago, leaning up against the pool table with a, a Miller Lite in my hand. And they said, what are you doing this weekend? And or actually, I said, what are you doing this weekend? And they said, well, I'm going to go check out this church. And they were talking about Watermark. Well, I went hungover. I mean, I smelled like smoke from the club the night before. I mean, that, and that really began a pattern in that season where I would just, I would go out and party Saturday night and Sunday I would wake up and I would go to this non-denominational Bible teaching church where I was just like, I can't believe these people actually do, you know, what this book says. And in the midst of that, like you said, Lisa, these friends or these new friends or a friend <laughs> invited me to a lake house and said, Hey, we're going to have a guy's weekend at a lake house. Do you want to go? I was like, sure, I'm in. Like I knew what that meant. Like I'd been to guys' weekends at lake houses where it's like, okay, like of course we're gonna, you know, drink. They were gonna play golf. I was like, all right, I know, I know, you know. Again, everything that I knew of fun accompanied alcohol. And I got out there, and there were no. I like I, I saw the coolers. I was like, oh, of course, there's the coolers. I opened a cooler. It's full of you know Dr Pepper and 
and Coke and, and waters and whatnot. And I'm like, wait, okay. All right. So there was no alcohol. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be lame. Well, it ended up being the best weekend I've ever had. And I measured like those words. It's not the first time I said this and I'm not firing for effect. It's not preacher talk. It was the most fun I had ever had. In fact, it was so much fun that that night I couldn't sleep. I, I just laid in bed. I thought the, the the reoccurring thing going through my mind was, I have been missing it. I have been missing it. I mean, we laughed. We uh, played poker for fun. People told stories, told jokes. It was all, it was, it was, it was nothing crude or inappropriate. And it was, and we ate steaks. Somebody grilled these amazing steaks. And it was just so, I mean, and these guys, I got the sense of like, you know, I think these guys, they could change the world. Like they just, they were smart people and, and doing meaningful things with their lives. And, and so the next morning after not sleeping all night long, I called my best friend and he, he of course was, you know, groggy and was like, dude, what are you doing? Calling me at 10 in the morning. You know, it wasn't even very early. And I said, man, we've been missing it. Like we, like there's something else out there that I just found that is so much more fun than the fun we had. Because what happens is, you know, alcohol robs you of creativity. You think you're having fun. You're, you're going to the same bar, running up the same bar tab, and you think you're living a, an extravagant life, but really you're just getting drunk over and over and over and over, and you're calling it a great time. And then before you know it, like for some people, they're like, well, that is a great time. Like, when, when are we going to get drunk? That's a great time. If you think about it logically, it, it's really not. <laughs> it's not a great time. It is is just escaping the reality that God has us in. Yeah. So give us, um, you know, again, assuming that, and there are, you know, Christians listening here, JP, there are non-Christians listening. Tell us what I think a helpful kind of plumb line would be for you to tell us what the Bible actually says about alcohol, because I think a lot of people are confused on this. Um, maybe they make assumptions based on what they were told as a kid, or they extrapolate out of it. What What are we talking about biblically in the way that Scripture addresses consumption of alcohol? Yeah, so hot take. I bet you very few listeners would get that question right. And I, that sounds arrogant because, like, well, then why would you get it right? Well, o- only because I had to do the, the research, you know, to, to search all of the scriptures that address alcohol and kind of come up with the rules of engagement. And so you do have, you know, that culture that you grew up in that any alcohol is sin. Well, I, I don't believe that because because I do believe that what Jesus drank was alcohol. I do believe his first miracle at the wedding of Cana was, was he turned water into wine. I think it was an alcoholic wine. I think that, you know, the guy says you saved the best wine for last. And so there's some, there's some things that are happening there that make me think, okay, that wine did have alcohol in it. And, and we can argue and debate about how much and what that content was, but I don't know that it matters if it did. Right. And so I think, a lot of people, you know, they think about this, and they, they'll stop at, well, don't get drunk, right? Or don't drink if you're tempted to get drunk. This comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. That's easy. You know, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so we, then I think a lot of us hide behind the mystery, but what is drunk actually? Like, is tipsy drunk? You know, is, is, it, is it drunk based on a breathalyzer? And I would say, you know, a word of caution is I wouldn't use alcohol. 
I mean, when you begin to use something, you're treating it like a drug. So if somebody says, man, I just need a glass of wine, well, I would be like, hey, consider what you're saying when you say you need a glass of wine. Is it you need something to feel a certain way. And where I think is at 30,000 feet, where I think alcohol can uh, is, is allowed, is it's for fellowship. If, if you're sitting around with friends and you're having an amazing meal and you have a glass of wine with that meal as opposed to a, a Sprite, I, I think biblically you're permitted to do that. But it's with an asterisk because there are some things that you should consider. First of all, we shouldn't even consider it if you're underage, as as I drank underage, right? And so if we're not legal, and this is, is like we don't even need to consider that. It's Romans 13. But I would say also don't be mastered by it. This is 1 Corinthians 6.12. And so if you wake up thinking about the drink that you're going to have, or if somebody invites you to a wedding and your first question is, hey, is there an open bar? What are we going to drink there? Then then there's probably something that's growing roots in your heart that's going to take you somewhere that you don't want to be. And so don't drink if you're addicted. Now, here's where it gets tricky, and this is where I think people really have to think. is, is I wouldn't drink around those who struggle with alcohol. And so this is Romans 14, you know, verses 13 through 23. And so when you think about people who struggle with alcohol, then you got to think about, okay, where am I drinking? So am I drinking at the bar? And, and if I'm in the bar, am I surrounded by people who struggle with alcohol? Then I think we have to be mindful in that. And I believe God is honored in the wrestling. And then, and this is the one that I think most people would probably leave off, is because I think there are people who take the liberty to drink, but they get frustrated at people who think it's wrong. When 1 Corinthians chapter 8 actually would warrant, would caution us not to drink around people who think it's wrong, that, that we would actually throttle our liberties back in an effort to love our neighbor as ourselves, And so that's something that I would say we should consider. And then Proverbs 31 is, I wouldn't drink if, if you are in a, in a position to make important decisions. He says it's not for kings to get drunk or to drink. And so those, those are some like big picture rules to consider that, um, that I think the, the scripture, you know, they come straight from the Bible. Yeah. And that's why I think it's, you know, your point five there about don't drink around those who believe it's wrong. I mean, that's kind of where I was with my parents, because even I, you know, yeah. even even though I kind of moved over to like actually biblically, you know, uh, there's a reason, you know, where it says, you know, wine gladdens the heart and whatnot and and what that means. But I never brought that up with my parents. I never sat down and said, let's let's straight up debate this and have a knockdown drag out about it. I'm like, I never felt the need to. I'm like, I could absolutely respect where they came from because they were so, you know, they loved the Lord and they were serving the Lord. And for some reason, this was a conviction of theirs. And that was totally fine. I mean, and again, where they went with it and how they judged other people, well, that's between them and the Lord. But I certainly didn't need to take up the standard and make it my mission to convince them that they were just conservative losers who, you know, didn't know what they were doing and had to get with the times. And so that's where I think taking on humility and being willing to, you know, put others before ourselves is, is, so necessary in in that instance. So yeah, good good point making those delineations. They did great with you, right? And so you're you're at a place where you you can have a different conviction and still respect and honor theirs and really be grateful for the way they raised you all at the same time. Yeah. 
Well, and I uh, shared with you, JP, and we'll link to it in this episode too, a a post that I had written where I kind of tell that story and kind of like how I transitioned in my thinking. But then I bring it back around to the conversation around where are we in the church today on this issue, not in the sense of like, you know, debating what is biblically absolute, but all the implications that you started alluding to here, like, you know, why do we, you know, you, you talked about mastery, like, you know, if, if the Holy Spirit isn't controlling you, then something else is, and we don't want anything but Christ to have mastery over us. But people will assume right. that mastery, when when we're speaking of alcohol, means like, oh, if you're mastered by it, you're like, you're you're flat out, you're passed out in an alley somewhere. But really, there's mastery that you're talking about that's like that whole thing of like you hit a Friday after work and you're like, I absolutely need to go out with, you know, for margaritas or drinks with my friends because it's been such a hard week and all the implications we make. And speak to that because you're a pastor and you've worked forever with young adults and have probably been around these conversations. Why do you think it's become such a, a gray area as far as very assumptive in like, I need alcohol for X, Y, Z. I don't, I don't know. I I mean, I I have theories. And so let me just start there and in humility and say, I don't have all of the answers, but I've got some theories here. One, I don't think 2020 did us any favors, right? And so you saw alcohol uh, went, uh, alcohol sales went through the roof and the Proverbs speak to this, right? I mean, it, it is, it's those who are looking to escape that use alcohol those that want to numb their pain, that use alcohol. And I think 2023 or the 21st century, we're still seeing some of these patterns. As as far as mastery goes, like we can start, I'm really going to meddle here. You know, for me, like I love coffee. And uh, I I sometimes go to bed looking forward to the cup of coffee that I'm going to have in the morning. But when I read that scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, I, I think, you know what? Every now and then, I need to go without it just to make sure it doesn't own me, and uh, and so I'll fast from it. And it, and often, you know, that fast is accompanied with a headache, which is scary that it actually impacts my, you know, my health and well being. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so as I think about alcohol, it's similar. I know for a lot of people, you know, they wake up thinking about, all right, they're a weekend warrior. Like, what are we going to do this weekend? Where are we going to go? What am I going to drink? You know, what's going to be my drink order? What cocktail? When am I going to have wine night with the girls or cocktails or hang out with a, you know, go, you know, fishing means an excuse to drink, right? It's like we're always coming up with these things. Watching a show is really just an excuse to drink. And when it, it becomes that normative in our lives, I believe as followers of the Most High God, uh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, we have to stop and get introspective and just say, hey, does this own me? Is this a part of my life that I would be okay removing? Uh, I'm currently, and I guess I'm not supposed to share this, but uh, I am currently on an alcohol fast. And so that's, you know, it's just something where it's like, you know what, uh, I'm going to go without this for a season because I don't want to get to a place where I look forward to having a drink with a friend all the time. I don't, I don't want that to be um, an initial thought is if I, if somebody invites me to a dinner, I think, oh, I wonder if I'll have a glass of wine with that steak. And so for me, it's just like, I, I try to go through these, these seasons of where I'm going to remove this from my life just to make sure that it doesn't have too tight of a grip on my heart. 
Yeah, yeah, that really is. I mean, that's so good. And even, I mean, again, you even gave the example with coffee, which again, when we start drawing our lines and making all these justifications, it's like, yeah, what is we will say that about coffee, like, I can't survive. I mean, how many t shirts and whatever have you seen about people with their (laughs) <laughs> with their coffee or or with whatever. Okay, so what do you think then about, because um, I know this is pretty prevalent now, where social events, even within the church, so whether it's a social event or even, I've, you know, I was telling you about, I know of Bible study and brews, things that happen that are kind of, whether small yeah. group or church-sanctioned events that either include alcohol or even center around alcohol. What's your take on that? Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, this happened kind of on my watch. I mean, I just remember when these started, like, beer and theology started popping up everywhere. And there's like a, you know, there's a Reformed camp that, and I, I shouldn't even just call out my Reformed brothers. It, it, it really is, it goes way beyond that. I had a conversation with some pastors where I felt like sometimes, even as pastors, we would get together and it's like, hey, we're just excited to you know, have a, a, a bourbon or something like that is a strong drink. And I'm like, man, I don't know if that's God's best for us. Uh, I think that we're called to be set apart in, in a different way and that that's not where we, we want to run to first. And, and it does seem like coping to me. And I can't judge someone's heart, um, but I can reflect on my own heart. And if it is, if it's something that I'm doing to cope, I want to be mindful of it. And if it's Bible study and a brew, like we're going there and it's just like, Hey, this is a, an outreach opportunity in the community. It's like, I'm not going to say whether someone's motive is, is right or wrong. Um, I heard a friend actually did a, I saw a reel yesterday where he was kind of calling out these kinds of things. I don't know that, that, Every individual one is wrong. I can't measure the motive of a person. Um, I think the trend is symptomatic of something bad. That's where it's easier for me to say, hey, I don't think this is a positive trend. And people are going to run to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and, you know, others who would sit around and discuss theology at pubs. I wasn't there either. So I don't know what that looked like. And, and I don't know if they crossed that line of tipsy. But, um, I, you know, I saw in my grandparents, to go back to my mom's parents, I saw them do this in a really godly way, you know, and, and it was just their heritage. It was just their culture. I never once in my life saw either of them intoxicated. And so I saw them drink in a way that I think was God-honoring. But I think there's a lot of people that in our hearts, regardless of how much we're drinking, it's not God-honoring. Yeah. Well, that's why I think, um, you know, what you had to say, I mean, kind of bringing to mind uh, Proverbs and obviously First Corinthians and other places where, I mean, really our two, our two motivations or the two checkpoints we have are, are we loving God and are we loving others? in this? And are we, are we honoring God? Is this something where I'm letting something else take control of me, or I'm choosing my own will, or my own proclivities over what God would, would see as best? And so, yeah, how can I, how can I put a brother and God himself before this? And I think that's just a great foundational question for all of us to ask. And again, and not have both, you know, non-drinkers and alcohol drinkers. To, when we start getting snippy and, and judgy about the other side, you know, that's a great heart check right there to be like, what's the bigger goal here and the bigger motive and the bigger uh, task that we have as believers. And so 
Um, well, super, Absolutely. super helpful, JP. And thank you for weighing in, not only with great advice as a pastor, but also your own personal story, which is a great example yeah. of God's redemptive work, you know, in a life. And I mean, my goodness, I'm glad that they had, you know, that you were willing to settle for the Dr. Peppers there and have fun, <laughs> have fun <laughs> yeah. with the guys because yeah. God did a work there. And that's neat to see. And that's a real testimony to his yeah. goodness and his meeting you there. So. Oh my goodness! Well, absolutely, friend. Well, well abs- hey, thank you for the conversation and letting us dive into something that's near and dear to my heart. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Well, folks, again, I want to remind you about JP's book, Why Do I Do What I Don't Want to Do? Um, We're going to go ahead and uh, make a copy of that book available to you. So you just jump over to 798. And again, as I always say, you give a gift to uh, Boundless and we will send a copy of this book to you. We'll also have in the show notes uh, the link to the post I was referencing um, my own journey kind of with this topic and with friendships and the church and whatnot. So JP, thank you again for such a marathon, three weeks of weighing in on our culture segment and things that are so important to us. Absolutely. And I commend that article to your listeners. I read it uh, earlier this week and uh, it's fantastic. So do do make sure you check out Lisa's post on this topic. Here we are, ready for the inbox segment of our show, and we have got Counselor Jeremy Keaton back again. Hey, Jeremy. Nice to be with you and our friends at Boundless again. Always great to have you here. And we've got kind of a short but sweet question that's a little bit unique because it's kind of from the younger end of our listenership. Um, But some people have siblings, I think, that would fall in this category, or maybe they're um, mentors at church or they work with the youth group. So here's a great question. Is it bad to date while in high school? Why or why not? You know, the, probably from a teen perspective, but what do, what do you think uh, from a counselor's perspective on dating as a teen? Well, as a marriage and family therapist, my first thought is this is a parent-child relationship topic, mm-hmm. first and foremost. So I hope the teen and the parent are 
having or have been talking about this question for, um, maybe for some time now uh, because different homes handle this in different ways and for good reason. I, I think that's good because there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to the question. There are different cultural contexts, uh, different expectations of, of what this means. There's different high school experiences. There's different types of peer groups. And there's really different definitions of a date or dating. So my thoughts um, and our answer here at Boundless does not trump this personalized situation that a parent and, and a teen ought to be talking about. Um, that said, I, I do think the age and the maturity of a teen and the purpose of a date or dating does really matter. Dating to marry or to force early premature thoughts of marriage, frankly, isn't wise. Um, but a date, if a parent and a teen agree on this for the reasons of an organized social event or group dates, group outings, uh, can teach us good formative social skills, can help us practice respect and have a good time as males and females together at practicing the distinctions of what it is to learn about the opposite sex in a really respectful way. I say in my home, what do Keaton men do? We respect women, and I want my boys to have these experiences of appropriately regarding a female and doing things as old-fashioned and chivalrous as opening a door or paying for an ice cream cone or whatever it might be. And I am glad to see in our home my teens have a practice at these types of uh, basic interactions. If the purpose is to grow and mature and practice being around positive people and a positive person of the opposite sex in a safe and open environment, um, that's good social-emotional skill training. But if a parent wants to talk to a teen about the kind of person they might someday, in a steady dating kind of way, want to date or marry, those are great teachable conversations. But I think this is key, too, while we're on the topic, is a rule of thumb of saying, I, I'm never going to date someone who I know I could or would not marry because of their values or their religious beliefs in a way that just do not align with what's essential for me. And I think that's a, even a great discussion for a parent and teen to have and uh, not to be casual about, well, I'm just in high school, so I can date someone who's of an entirely different faith or doesn't have these values because I'm just recreationally doing this. I don't think that's a great idea. I, I think there are some rules of thumb that keep us safe in life and uh, in our uh, marriage potential, even starting at a young age to begin to think in those ways. Certainly playing adult or sexualization in solo dating, uh, compromising, tempting situations, these really ought to all be avoided, of course. But again, growing these positive relationship skills, positive judgment skills, and then as a teen ages and gets closer to college, of course, that is very different um, where you're beginning to have more independence. And so there's a vast range between young teen and older teen, but those are some inputs on the question today, Lisa. All right. Well, thanks so much for weighing in on that. Okay, folks, um, as always, we love it when you are in our sphere and following us and you know what's going on. Um, I often talk about our social media channels, which if you're not following us on Facebook or on Instagram, please do that uh, at Boundless Team. 
But also this week, I want to remind you about our e-newsletter, which you can go to boundless.org and you can sign up for it right on our homepage. You just put in your email and it will come once a week. And it's like a roundup of everything we have going on that week and all of our topics, as well as some boundless news as it happens and just kind of keeping you in the know. So make sure you get that because it's kind of your way of being uh, an insider on all things boundless and being aware of what is happening and what is coming up. So So uh, go ahead and sign up today at boundless.org. In the meantime, I will plan on seeing you around next week. This is Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org. Focus on the family. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, walk like him. Disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.